From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to have the opportunity to speak with Professor Michael Wagner from the School of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UW-Madison. Professor Wagner's research and work focuses on conspiracy thinking, misinformation in social media, fact-checking, and political polarization. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Wagner. That's my pleasure. We definitely have a lot to talk about today, but do you want to start with a little bit about yourself and your teaching and your research interests? Sure. So um, I uh, am a political scientist by training. So I got my my PhD in political science at Indiana uh, back in 2006. Um, But I had my undergraduate degree in journalism. And before graduate school, spent a number of years as a journalist in Illinois and Nebraska before going on to graduate school. And so I've always been interested in the intersection between politics and the news media and with what people say and how what they say is characterized by the news. And then how that uh, communication does or doesn't influence how people think, reason, feel, and behave. So most of my research uh, focuses on those kinds of questions, and my teaching kind of runs the gamut from kind of the intro to mass communication um, and beginning reporting classes through in-depth reporting, fact-check reporting, um, and then upper-level courses in mass media and behavior um, and public opinion. And then at the grad level, I teach a political communication seminar um, uh, mass media and the individual seminar and a physiology and communication effects class. Were you a news junkie as a kid at all? Yeah, I really was. Um, I would always, um, I, I would always read um, the paper uh, in the morning um, in my hometown and we would get the Minneapolis Star Tribune on Sundays and I would read that. Um, I loved watching television news and listening to the radio. I started working at a radio station um, when, when I was 14 Um, And I became the assistant news director there just because no one else wanted to do it, I think, basically. And they just gave me that title to shut me up and let me go and and do some stories about what was going on around our town. So, yeah, I've always been super interested uh, in the news. Yeah, fair enough. So diving right into it, kind of, a lot of your research speaks directly to this exact political moment. Um, We can kind of start with your work on conspiracy thinking uh, and the idea that covid is being blown out of proportion or is somehow a hoax. Can you speak at all to how that is kind of playing out at the federal, state, maybe local level? Sure. Well, you know, in some ways, um, we've, in the study of political communication, have often focused on how important elite messaging is to public opinion. And with COVID-19, you know, the elite messaging coming from the top uh, with the president of the United States has been um, really inconsistent and often feeding into conspiracy theories or at least feeding uh, into misinformation. So misinformation about what might treat the virus, misinformation about how it spreads, um, misinformation, um, and and in some cases, conspiracism uh, about 
um, the origins of the virus. And so the, the president has dabbled in all of those sorts of things. The president gets more news attention than anybody else on planet Earth. And so when those kinds of statements are made, they get shared widely and quickly. Um, and so that's part of it. I think another part of it is there are uh, people in the population who are just more prone to uh, conspiratorial thinking and believing that there's a, a secret cabal of people somewhere kind of secretly making decisions that affect uh, what happens for, for most people most of the time. Um, and then there's the amplification machine of Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and um, you know those kinds of platforms that uh, make it easier for like-minded people to find each other. And it also makes it easier for information to get shared. And because of the uh, extraordinarily lax enforcement of these platforms' own policies, it becomes pretty easy to share misinformation and even create fake accounts to specifically share uh, misinformation. And so all of that, I think, um, is happening at once. It's also happening in an environment where uh, where there's been a, a decades-long effort to foment distrust in the news media and also to um, take a, a shot or two at our trust in scientists. And so as the experts on COVID-19 try to tell us the best information at the time uh, that they know, uh, it's, it's um, not as trusted uh, as it might have been uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, partially uh, due to the chipping away of the esteem with which we hold experts in, in public dialogue. Yeah, you mentioned uh, a, a subset of Americans that are more prone to conspiratorial thinking. What are some of the characteristics or learned experiences that kind of lead to that? Yeah, uh, one uh, factor uh, coming from research led by Joanne Miller um, at the University of Delaware uh, is people who have uh, low trust in political institutions, but also kind of high interest in politics. So people who are attuned to what's going on, but don't necessarily trust uh, our institutions uh, tend to be really likely to believe uh, in conspiracy theories. So that's one thing um, that we found, uh, it, or what they found. Uh, and then in some work that we've done um, coming out of the Center for Communication and Civic Renewal, uh, we found a few different factors, including um, racial resentment, that trust factor again, um, also leading to uh, conspiratorial thinking. And then this other factor um, that's called the, the news finds me perception. It's this, it's this idea that um, people think, you know, I don't really need to follow the news because if it's important, it'll find its way to me on social media somehow or in conversation. If, if it's really important, it'll be on my Facebook feed, it'll be on Twitter, somebody will tell me about it. And people who ha are high in that orientation, who think it's not really their responsibility to pay attention to the news, are more likely uh, to believe in, uh, or, or to exhibit, I guess I should say, uh, conspiratorial thinking. Is there a tangible or measurable comparison between the number of people who have bought into COVID theories when compared to other conspiracy theories? I haven't seen um, a lot of research that directly compares buy-in to a COVID-19 related conspiracy theory versus others. Um, I think that uh, research from Joanne Miller and Kyle Saunders and Christina Farhat would suggest that um, if messaging from one political side, especially a side that's kind of perceived uh, to be losing, um, is claiming conspiracy, uh, 
and often that's done as an explanation, right? So how could we possibly have lost this election? How could we possibly be doing worse in the polls? There must be some kind of conspiracy. Um, and so kind of the, uh, there's, a, there's a, a bias toward being on the losing end of a cycle or a losing end of some political debate and, and being more likely to uh, endorse uh, conspiracy theories. And right now, you know, President Trump is not being favorably evaluated on his handling of COVID-19. Um, his approval rating is, is fairly low. Uh, his performance in the battleground polls and the 2020 polling uh, isn't uh, that great right now. And so all of those things might make it more likely that strong Trump supporters would be more likely to endorse um, conspiracy theories about COVID, uh, especially related to, say, news reporting about it, um, behavior from Democrats uh, who, who lead different states about it, um, and behavior uh, related to uh, voting, because that might be, you know, an area that would come become really important uh, to whether uh, the president holds on to office um, in in November, and 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 that's what we see, right? We see the president um, blaming the news media, tweeting about voter fraud. Um, and doing those kinds of things that sort of stoke that kind of fire. And so um, directly, I can't say that we say that we know that there are more people or less people who believe in COVID conspiracy theories versus other ones. One thing that we do know uh, from some research um, from one of my uh, students, Jordan Foley, who just finished his PhD uh, and is off to Washington State where UW Political Science uh, alum Travis Rudo is also at, um, is that um, being prone to conspiratorial thinking doesn't always predict believing in a specific conspiracy theory. And so part of this is just wrapped up into our own partisanship. And if our leaders tell us the other side is trying to pull a fast one on us, even if we're normally not prone to conspiratorial thinking, um, some of us uh, end up following, following the leader, so to speak, and, and endorsing a conspiracy theory, or at least saying that we do, <laughs> as a way to um, signal support uh, for our embattled leader in our particular party. Um, it's almost always the case that presidents attack the news media. So that's not new, right? I mean, President uh, Bill Clinton gave a really famous interview in, in Rolling Stone early in his presidency where he said he was tired of the knee-jerk liberal press. Right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, presidents have always attacked the news media. Uh, what they tend not to do is, is to declare news stories as phony, intentionally fake, um, spreading misinformation, um, being un-American, being dangerous to the um, to the advancement of the American experiment, like those kinds of things that the President Trump does, I think are pretty new, as compared to uh, other presidents. You know, presidents have always gone after the news media, but they've done less, to my knowledge, about trying to stoke particular uh, conspiracies, and almost always um, stoking conspiracies where the the argument seems to be: if the news is bad for me, there must be some kind of conspiratorial or fake explanation for it. Still going off of that, what does your research suggest might be effective in counteracting these fake news or twisted news scenarios? Yeah, you know, uh, some work uh, that I have uh, that, that's forthcoming at Journal of Communication um, with uh, graduate student uh, Janice Lee uh, in our department suggests that um, fact checks work the best um, when people admit that they don't know um, about something before learning about it in a fact check. Um, and so we kind of categorize people into, into, into different sorts of ways of thinking about knowledge. You, you have the informed who are both right when you ask them a, a question of fact 
and they also are confident that they're right. So we asked people two questions. We showed them a statement and asked them, you know, on a scale, is this true or not? And then we asked them, how confident are you in your answer? Those who got it right and were confident are informed. Those who got it right but weren't sure, uh, we call those ambiguously informed. Those who are not right um, but, but, but unsure, uh, we called um, ambiguously uninformed. And those who were wrong but certain they were right, even though they were wrong, we called those misinformed. And it turns out that the misinformed are the least likely to benefit from a fact check. It doesn't help um, the misinformed to learn the truth. They tend to hold on to their attitude if they held it confidently. Whereas the other groups, especially the uninformed, those who did not know and had no, and, and just said, I don't know. I, I admit to you that I don't know rather than guessing. Um, those folks are the ones who are the most likely to learn uh, from a fact check. Um, another, in another paper uh, that's under review with, with, with Janice and also with Jordan Foley uh, and Omar Dumdum is one where we found that labeling a story a fact check can also help people improve um, improve getting it right um, has the backfire effect of uh, making people more likely to think that the news source they were reading was biased so on the one hand people are more likely to learn the truth but that may have a long-term consequence that we didn't investigate in our study which was does it actually chip away at trust in the news when the news media do something they traditionally haven't which is take a side right this thing is true this thing is false rather than the president says this, his opponents say that, you decide. You know, um, yeah, we've kind of gone through different eras of, of news where we had really partisan press um, when, when the country was founded for, for a long time, actually. And then uh, when journalism schools started to professionalize, we had more of an objective media where we had the, you know, here are two sides, there are two and only two sides to every issue. And uh, we're not going to tell you um, which one we think is right to now where there's some of that there's some partisan news, especially on cable and the internet. And then there's also these fact-checking organizations which take a side, but try not to do so in a way that favors one party uh, over the other. Speaking of the media doing new things that they've normally never done, Twitter has very recently started labeling some of the president's tweets as, or I, I forget the exact label right now, but they've started labeling them and like started to fact-check them. What's your take on this situation? It's something that most social media platforms like Facebook too have in their terms of service and have as their policy. Facebook doesn't enforce that uh, on, on the president and, and has actually developed other policies to say they're not going to particularly fact check ads coming from um, some politicians. Um, and so the, there's a net good in platforms saying we have some good reason to think that this information coming from one of our elected representatives is not true. Um, they open themselves up to the criticism of being biased um, in terms of how they decide to deploy the use of the label that says you should be worried about this particular tweet um, or, or, or Facebook post or, or something like that. So they open themselves up um, to a whole host of questions that they haven't quite thought through, which is how do we decide when to use the label? Um, whose fact check is good enough to be on the label? Does it have to be a, an organization that's gone through the international fact checking networks verification process uh, or not? Um, if so, um, are they able to treat them all equally? What if fact checkers disagree? What do we do then? Um, you know, so there are other kinds of questions still out there, but um, if there's a way to alert the public that statements their leaders are making aren't true, um, I would say that's generally better than not doing that. Do you think that it is playing at all into the president's hand or the president's play for 
kind of the narrative he is spinning around himself and his administration about how uh, the media is uh, allegedly treating him unfairly? Yeah, I think part of the president's strategy um, is to use the news media as a source when it suits him and to attack it when it doesn't. So if there is a good poll or a story that reflects positively on the president, he always touts where it's, where it's from. He'll say CNN had a good poll or, or something like that. He'll always, always tout it as um, uh, a good source of information when the news is, is good for him. But when the news is bad for him, he also then attacks those same sources as fake, um, as uh, you know, failing, um, as dangerous, as uh, you know, against him uh, specifically, and so, um, and, and it and it kind of fits into part of the narrative that's appealed to a subset of his strongest supporters, which is to say, the news media are against you. They don't. They don't like your kind. They don't value you. They they value other kinds of people people that uh, you resent. And so when stories are bad about me, what that really is, is um, a set of stories that are trying to um, make you look bad, affect your way of life, keep you from getting the things that you deserve. And so it's kind of a quick shorthand, I think, that the president can use to rally uh, a non-trivial subset of his supporters uh, when things are not going well um, in, in news coverage or just in the, the practice of, of real life. So do you think that this move by Twitter will make a difference at all in terms of like persuasion of people suddenly realizing that um, the president is speaking unfactually? I, I, the, the president himself, I think, is a hard person to make a prediction about. What we know from fact-checking research uh, is that when politicians in general are fact-checked, they tend to be more careful about how they say things in the future. Uh, so there is a little bit of a, what, what Lupia and McCubbins in their book, The Democratic Dilemma, call penalties for lying, right? If, when there are penalties for lying, democracy can survive even if people aren't informed, right? Because there's some mechanism that punishes our leaders when they say things that aren't true. And so there's some evidence that broadly, fact checks rein in what some politicians say. Uh, I, I don't know that I feel comfortable making the same prediction about President Trump. And I, I, I would almost wager a guess that he would be more likely to say that this is evidence that, that these platforms are biased against him rather than um, constraining uh, uh, him expressing his views. In your view, do you think that citizens and Americans are more or less concerned with misinformation than in the past? Like, what's, your, what's your take on the current situation and public opinion on misinformation? Yeah, there's some really interesting work being done uh, by one of our recent grads, uh, Mallory Perryman, who's now at uh, VCU as a professor, or assistant professor, and, and she's been asking questions about people's perceptions of other, of kind of the other side's media diet. And, and, and what she's been finding is that people tend to say, I have a really diverse media diet. People in my party are diverse, not as diverse as me, but that have a pretty diverse diet. If you're on the other side, they just listen to the other side. And that's true of Republicans, that's true of Democrats. Both sides tend to generally think this about, uh, about the other side. Um, and so, so that's one thing that's happening is that we perceive the other side to be far more cloistered in an echo chamber than we perceive ourselves and our own side to be. People tend to think the other side is more in an echo chamber than they are. 
And so people tend to think the other side is going to be more prone to being exposed to misinformation. It's also the case that people estimate across parties, across ideologies, and across knowledge even, they, they tend to overestimate how exposed they are to misinformation. Right? When, they're, when they're watching television news uh, from a local TV station or a national network, when they're reading a newspaper, when they're reading a newspaper online, they're, they're really not exposed to, to fake news. Um, and the difference between a news organization getting something wrong and, and fake news is that when a news organization gets something wrong, they correct it. They tend not to correct it as prominently as they made the mistake, but they correct it. Um, fake news uh, doesn't do that. You, you, don't, you don't see a, a bot promulgating a conspiracy theory and then say, oh gosh, we were wrong. You know, Hillary Clinton wasn't actually running a child sex ring from the basement of a pizzeria after all, right? Like, that's not what happens, right? So there's a distinction between the news getting something wrong and saying, whoops, we screwed up, here's the truth, and these other kinds of things. But people overestimate how exposed they are to misinformation. And it's sort of a, it's, it's kind of a cruel irony of, um, of communication education and, and education in general over the last few decades where we've really been promoting media literacy and being skeptical, but it turns out people are, are not very good judges of what to be skeptical of and what not to be skeptical of. And so people apply the same level of skepticism to uh, a story from their local television news station with the same anchors and reporters they've been watching for years as they give to a site they've never heard of before where there are misspellings in the headline, something that is, is mean about the other side. People, you know, are less skeptical then, and they're more skeptical um, when it's uh, um, against their own side, regardless of the source. And so, we've we've kind of overtrained people to be skeptical, or at least we, or we've undertrained them on when they should be more skeptical, right? When they hear they've never heard before, when this, when the only source they can find is a source they've never heard of before, and and can't find anywhere else, when there's no corroboration anywhere else. Um, when it's something that sounds fantastical and terrible for the other side. Like these are, these are when we should be skeptical um, as compared to a poll came out and the candidate you like was losing. Um, that, you know, that's, that's a, a less likely situation where we would want to be skeptical. Do you um, want to tell us at all about the COVID-19 app that you are developing with friend of the pod, Devon Shaw? Yeah, so uh, Devon, uh, who's in my department, uh, along with Lou Friedland, uh, Doug McLeod, and Deb Pierce, and CJ Yang in my department, have been working with um, this group called Chess. Chess is in the School of Engineering. Devon is the research director of Chess, and then Dave Gustafson is kind of the, the overall director of Chess. Chess stands for the Center for Health Enhancement System Studies. And they've, over the years, done a lot of really cool uh, apps uh, that you can have on your phone to help people deal with uh, addiction, um, like alcoholism, drug addiction, um, those sorts of things. And so they have um, social support discussion networks, uh, they have push notifications, they have you know, helpful information. And so they, they know how to build health communication apps. And we are communicators who can study the prevalence of misinformation and also promote um, these kinds of apps to the broader public. And so our two groups got together when the pandemic started and created a new app called COVID-19 Wisconsin Connect. So at the Apple, uh, um, you can get it at the App Store or on Google Play. Uh, if you just search kind of COVID-19 Wisconsin, you'll find it. Um, it's also online at COVID19WisconsinConnect.org. And it's uh, an app and a website where there are places to have discussions about life in the pandemic, about 
um, living as we sort of move from phase to phase and kind of re-entry to normal society, things like that. And, th and those discussion rooms are also moderated. So you can just ask a question and then moderators who are trained in this stuff will get back to people. Um, there are also, there's also a COVID-19 fact checker uh, where we're trying to kind of scrape the Wisconsin media, social media ecology and find out what bits of misinformation are floating through Wisconsin. And then we can write up short fact checks about those. Um, so we do that on the fact checker. The, the uh, Healthy Minds folks on campus, uh, Richie Davidson's uh, center, um, have given us free meditation strategies and meditation stuff. And so if you just need to kind of calm down because it's really hard to live during this time, um, the meditation app can help. There's also a bunch of information from DHS in the state about um, COVID facts and, and state policies and county policies and things like that. Um, and so all of those things are part uh, of this app. So the discussion, the fact checking, the, the calming, and then just the good evidence about uh, COVID-19. And so all of that stuff is there. We kind of update it uh, on the apps uh, and the website relatively continually. Um, and we'll be pushing that forward for as long as you know the pandemic goes on. And so the chess folks built this uh, tool incredibly quickly. Um, and then we uh, worked to get uh, former Governor Thompson, um, to uh, cut a PSA for it, uh, as well as some other folks, um, a, a doctor and, and, and a Spanish-speaking family to try to target groups that were the most at risk. So, you know, those over 65, um, you know, Hispanic and Black uh, Wisconsinites, uh, Hmong Wisconsinites, uh, Indigenous Wisconsinites. So we found kind of ways to promote to particular targeted areas that, that need the information the most. And so we've been, we've been at that for, I guess, about 100 days now. Yeah, that sounds like excellent information for anyone looking for any information about the pandemic. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to cover in the last couple of minutes we have? Yeah, I think you'd asked before about what else helps uh, in terms of not believing things that aren't true and what, yeah. like, what can news sources do. So there's a couple other things. One thing that news organizations can do is to not repeat the false claim when they're doing a fact check. So instead of just saying, you know, you know, Senator Baldwin or Governor Evers said that this thing was true and it's not. Instead, just report the thing that's true. <laughs> um, it, people use the news media when they're doing other things, right? They're, they're changing a diaper, they're driving in their car and listening to the radio, they're, uh, you know, scrolling through the internet and just getting headlines. And so it's hard to remember where they learned something and it's also hard to remember like the precise set of facts that the news organization wants people to remember. And then the other thing is something we all can do, which is people who have some kind of, you know, high political interest and political knowledge um, and, you know, have done a little bit of investigating about claims. It, it turns out that, you know, people who are trusted sources of others on social media uh, can be helpful uh, in uh, making corrections that, that other people will actually believe. And so if, uh, your uncle who is spewing uh, things that aren't true on the internet doesn't trust the news media, uh, your uncle might trust you. And so um, Letitia Bode and Emily Raga, who are alums of, I think one's from our program and journalism, one's from the political science program, um, do a lot of joint work on social media corrections. And when they come from trusted sources within one's own network, they, they tend to be more uh, successful. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor sure. Wagner. Um, we hope to talk to you again real soon, especially considering your expertise on the subject. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 
For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.